The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. We're going to read the scripture that Jonathan will preach on here this morning and teach us from. We are going through the book of 1 John, if you haven't been here for a while or um, we're into chapter 3, so it's page 1022 in the Black Pew Bibles in front of you. Again, 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So in the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Morning, Delta. How are you guys doing this morning? Good. One moderate whistle there, so I'm going to assume everyone else is still recovering from the June heat wave that we had there. Um, there you go. I like that one there. Um, as Pastor Tom said, we are in the midst of John's letter, and what you're going to notice this morning is that the Apostle John is going to make a big shift, Okay. The front half of his letter, he's been talking about God and how God is light and how we live in light of the fact that God is light. Starting with our verses this morning, chapter 3, verse 11, the Apostle John is going to completely switch gears and he's going to move to another theme and this theme is going to consume him until the end of the letter. And it's this idea that not only is God light and should we live in light of the fact that God is light, but we're also going to see that God is love. And we are meant to live our lives in light of this fact as well. The fact that God is love is meant to have practical, everyday effect on us. And this morning, the sermon, the title is going to be this, Love in Action. John is going to go to another test. He Again, he's writing his letter in order to help us to understand that it is possible to know, to be assured that we have eternal life. And he keeps giving us these tests And one of the tests is something we've been calling the love test. This idea of how we can know that we actually know God the Father, the God who is love. And John is simply going to say this. You can know that you know this God if you have love for fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And if this love actually leads to action. Everyday, normal, visible impact on you in light of who you are in Christ. 
Now, oftentimes what uh, teachers will do in order to prove a point is that they'll come at us with some sort of contrast, some sort of comparison. So if I wanted to prove a point, I might contrast something big against something small. If I want to prove a point, I might contrast something hot against something cold, something fast or slow, young or old, winner or loser. And what we're doing is we're bringing these two opposites, we're bringing them side by side, and so as we bring them close to each other, what we're meant to do is see just the stark contrast that is between these two items so that we can make a point as a teacher, as a preacher, or a mommy, or a daddy, or wherever you're at, a co-worker giving a, a, um, a presentation at work, a good teacher uses this kind of teaching aid. The Apostle John is an excellent teacher, and he's just been doing this thing the entire, entire way throughout. He's been, he's been giving us contrast. He's drawn our attention to comparisons such as walking in darkness versus walking in light, saying we have no sin versus confessing our sin. Loving the world versus loving the Father. Denying Christ versus confessing Christ. Being children of the devil versus being children of God. And most recently, rolling out of the very end of last week's verses, at the very end of verse 10, John presented us with this comparison, this idea of hate versus love. Hating your brother versus loving your brother. And it's going to be this last contrast, as I said, the comparison between love and hate, which is going to be the consuming message throughout the rest of John's letter. Because God is love, believers are called to love one another. And this morning, what John is going to do, he's going to dive right into this new theme. He's going to pick up in this second major portion of his letter, chapter 3, verse 11, all the way to the end. And the first thing he wants to do is show us this truth that the true children of God, those who genuinely know the Father in a saving relationship, true children of God are to love and serve one another. They're to love and serve fellow brothers and sisters in Christ by following the example of Jesus. Jesus is the perfect example of what love is and what love does. And so this time around, John wants to show us that whoever hates his brother abides in death just as whoever hates his brother abides in darkness. This is what he said last time when he presented us with the love test. Chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. He simply just boiled it down and says this, we're, I'm writing to you a new commandment. I'm saying something to you that is, that is new. Jesus Christ shed new light on this reality. Whoever loves his brother, this is the one who abides in the light. In him there is no cause for stumbling, but whoever hates his brother is one who abides in darkness. You hate Your heart is consumed with hatred. You're against people, whether it's physical action, just mental harboring, whether it's just something that's an attitude of mind or attitude of heart. John says this, you abide in darkness. And not only do you abide in darkness, but this morning he's going to show us that the heart, the mind, which is consumed for hate specifically, that regards other Christians, other Christ followers with this heart attitude, with this attitude of mind, Not only do you abide in darkness, but you abide in death. Now, before John shows us what true love looks like, he's going to first show us what true hate looks like. 
And he's going to do this by pointing us back to the first murder in human history, the murder of a man named Abel by the hands of his brother Cain. So if you look in your copy of Scripture, John starts here, and this is what he starts writing in verse 11. He says, For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. There's an oughtness to it. We ought to do this. This is what right action flowing out of a heart which has been truly born of God does. It loves fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 12, we should not be like Cain. We should one love one another, but we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? What was his motivation for doing this? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Therefore, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Now, in these verses, 11 through 13, what we see is this, that God's children learn to love one another by avoiding the example of Cain. So he's going to get to the positive aspect of what love and serving and self-sacrifice looks like by upholding the perfect example, Jesus Christ. But before he gets there, he's first going to show us this truth by going the negative route. And he says, if you want to see what not to do, all you have to do is look at the life of the man, Cain. There's a massive difference between those who love and those who hate, between those who are the children of God on one hand and those who are the children of the devil on the other hand. The children of God, having been born of God, they do what is right, which includes loving their brother. This is exactly what we saw last week at the end of chapter 3, verse 10. In contrast, John says, the children of the devil do not do what is right, and they hate their brother. John wants us to see that intricately tied up with the gospel of Jesus Christ is this message that God's children should love one another. This is the message that John's first readers heard from the beginning, from the first moments that they began to hear the gospel and hear of their need for faith in Jesus. They were also being taught that faith in Christ, genuine new birth to move from spiritual death to eternal life has practical everyday implications. It wasn't believe in Jesus and then live however you want to. It was the call to repent of sin, place faith in Christ so we can have a relationship with God the Father. And when this reality genuinely takes hold of you, your old nature is pulled out, God's very nature is put in, it is going to have a practical, everyday implication on the way you just do life. To know God's love in the person of Jesus Christ was to have an effect on how they loved one another. The vertical reality of God's love known and experienced in the person of Jesus was to have a horizontal effect on the way they talked, on the way they acted, on the way they thought, their relationships, everything. And just as it was to be true in the lives of John's first readers, it's to be the exact same way for me and you. Now, in stark contrast to this kind of love is the hate which was shown in the life of Cain. 
In order to illustrate the idea of hate, the Apostle John dips into the Old Testament and he goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. This is the place in the Bible where you find this story, this interaction get played out between Cain and Abel, these two brothers. And in this chapter, we bump into these two brothers, Cain and Abel. And in the story, Abel brings a sacrifice to God. His sacrifice was acceptable and righteous. But Cain, on the other hand, brought a sacrifice that was not good. It was evil. It was unacceptable before God. And because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Genesis 4, verse 8. And in the end, Cain's actions revealed something about himself. Because of the way that he saw his brother's righteousness the way that his righteousness was acceptable to God the Father, that righteousness unearthed, it exposed unrighteousness in the life of Cain, and it led him to the place where it revealed that his spiritual parentage, the family, the spiritual family that he belonged to, was of the evil one. For the devil was a murderer from the beginning. Like father, like son. And in this sense, Cain proved himself to be a son, a child of the evil one, a child of the devil, which is language that John used last week in the verses that we looked at. Because instead of the righteousness of his brother stirring up righteousness and repentance in him, longing to move him closer to God, Abel's righteousness actually stirred up jealousy, hate, which eventually led to murder. The Apostle John wants us to see that in the end, Cain's actions against his brother were the ultimate act of hate, the ultimate act of non-love. And for this reason, John says, listen, we just should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Abel's righteousness so stirred up jealousy in Cain that it led him to hate, and then that hate gave birth to the actual physical taking of his brother's life. Now, this may seem weird, but it's not too uncommon to see a person become jealous over another person's righteousness, right? So, so if you're like me, and oftentimes when I read the Old Testament stories, like I'm trying to like figure out like what was like going on in Cain's mind. Like, I mean, listen, he had the opportunity to repent. If you, even if you go back and you read those, when Cain offered, when Abel offered his sacrifice, it was righteous and acceptable before God. And And Cain brought his. It was evil. It was not good. It was not right. It was unacceptable. And what you don't see is God going, man, you had your one chance and you muffed it. What he says is, no, you have the opportunity. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is to have you. You have the opportunity right now to repent of your wrong, to make this right, and to find acceptance through repentance. Let your brother's righteousness be this in your life. And instead, what Abel or what Cain does is he lets that righteousness kick up unrighteousness in his heart, and it led him to the place of murder, jealousy, hate, murder. And so when I think about those sorts of things, I look at that, I'm like, man, how does that work out? You know, like, what, what, how does a person go from just jealousy to hatred? And then hatred so, so filled with hate over someone else, what we want to do is actually go and take their life from them physically. Now, it's not hard to see this in the New Testament. This is exactly how the religious leaders of Jesus' day acted against Jesus. 
Jesus, the epitome, the ultimate pinnacle of what righteousness looks like, right living in regard to God the Father. And what was the beef with the religious people of Jesus' day? Jesus' righteous living so provoked them, it led them to plot the murder of the Son of God. They were living like Cain. The spirit of Cain is what marked these religious leaders in Jesus' day. And the temptation for us is to look down our nose at Cain or to look down our nose at the religious leaders to wag our fingers and think we would do differently if we were in the same situation. Like, how dare Cain? Like, if I was there. Like, if it was Jonathan Davis and he had a brother named Abel and I was in that situation, what I would not do is see my brother's righteousness and then let that stir up jealousy and hate and lead to murder. If I were in the place of the religious leaders and I saw Jesus, you know, I would be falling on my knees and saying, what must I do to be saved? And my whole life would be perfect. And the point that John is writing, it's like, no, you wouldn't, man. No, you wouldn't. You would find yourselves tripping into the same place of Cain. You would find yourself tripping into the same place of the religious leaders. We have to remember John's warning is being written to believers right now. And at times, even in our own hearts, we see this attitude creep up in our own lives. Righteousness in someone else's life has the way of doing one of two things. When we look at another person, a friend or a family member, someone else in your community group, the person who's discipling you or you're discipling other, mom or dad, grandma, grandpa, just that person that's in your life. When you look at them and you just go, man, I see Jesus in this person. Jesus in the way they think, Jesus in the way they act, Jesus in the way they speak. And I see Jesus in this person when I see righteousness or Christ in someone else that has the way of doing one of two things. It's either going to stir up joy in your heart for them. Yes, someone gets it. They're, they're doing good. They're, do, they're following after Christ. Jesus is doing something in them. I'm so thankful that they have such a vibrant, robust walk with Christ. Or seeing Jesus in another person will stir up jealousy and hate in our heart against them. And if you think this is just too far out there, just think about the last time that you were in a spiritual slump and your friend's spiritual life was firing in all cylinders. So you show up at CG and you've just sort of been in a dry season. Brass heavens. God's not hearing your prayer. The Bible seems cold and distant. God is just sort of an idea. He doesn't seem to be close. And you look at your friend over there at CG, and they're over there, and they open up their Bible to the preaching text for that night, and their page is all wet and warped, and you ask them, like, well, what's going on? Why is your Bible so messed up? It's like, man, I was just so overcome with the loss last night. I was just weeping over, my, over, over the lostness, and my tears were just ruining my Bible. They're like, okay. And then they get up off the couch, and they're sort of walking away, and they're rubbing their knee like, oh, what's the matter with your knees? It's like, well, I was just so overcome with the nations and the lossless of the nations. I was on my knees praying all, all night last night for them. And I'm sorry that I'm a little weak right now, but I was fasting all week for a lost coworker. I'm just so, I'm just so famished. And, oh, and they start tapping their pocket, and they're like, man, can I borrow a pen? My ink pen just ran out. I've been reading the Bible so much. My pen, I have no good pens in my house, and, I've just, and you're just looking at them, and you're smiling on the outside. You're like, man, I'm glad that's good for you. But on the inside, like, you just got them in a headlock, and you're just like punching them. You're the one weeping. They're the one praying. 
They're the one reading the Bible. They're the one doing what Jesus is asking them to do. But instead of you in your heart of hearts being genuinely overjoyed for them, in your heart what you're doing is you're just jealously fueling hate for them. Why? Because their righteousness is exposing unrighteousness in you. This is exactly what was going on in Cain's heart. Abel's righteousness stirred up in his heart a jealousy-fueled hatred which eventually led him to murder his brother. And in the end, John's simple warning to brothers and sisters is this, avoid the example of Cain. Now what's interesting is what John does with this information when he rolls into verse 13. Verse 13 is Holy Spirit-inspired implication. What's the implication of this text? The fact of the way Cain shows us how righteousness and unrighteousness work, this example of hate. What's interesting is what John says next in verse 13. In light of this bad example we find in Cain, John says, listen, just don't be surprised when you find out that the world just flat out hates you. When God's people love one another, John wants us to realize that this kind of love will stir up the hate of the world. Evil will always be bent against righteousness. Cain and the hate-fueled murder of his brother is simply an illustration of the world and its ways. That's what John is driving at in verse 13. Cain was of the evil one, and the same can be said for the world. It is of the evil one. And just as Abel's righteousness stirred up the hate of Cain, so the righteousness of God's people will stir up the hate of the world. This is exactly what Jesus was talking about when he said in John chapter 15, listen, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This reminds me of a time when I was in the military. I think most of you know this. From 1999 to 2007, um, I served in the United States um, Army, specifically with the Illinois Army National Guard. And one of the things you do in the Army Guard is you do one week in a month and then two weeks out of the year. A couple years into my military stint, we got to take a trip to Germany. And so just thinking about this this past week reminded me of a time when I was in Germany. It was me and two other buddies. We were walking down the road. We were going from the barracks, making our way to somewhere. Um, I, I can't really remember where, but one of the guys was just cussing, cussing up a storm. I mean, like making a sailor, like the, the cussing tapestry that he was weaving would make a sailor blush with shame. Um, like some way the people use a fly swatter, just flipping stuff around. This guy was taking God's name in vain in this way, and it was just grating on me. Um, the name of Jesus is precious to me. It's by the name of Christ that we find power in salvation, for salvation. And the way this guy was tossing around the name of God, he wasn't singing a worship song, okay? He was, he was weaving a, a, a curse word tapestry. And it finally got to the point where I just, we just stopped and I looked at it and I asked him, like, I, I'm going to ask you to please stop taking God's name like this. Don't use it flippantly like this. Now, what do you think happened? Flippian jailer falling on his knees, what must I do to be saved? No. Laughed in my face, and then he just redoubled his efforts. 
right? It only brought laughter, and he just ramped it up even more. Now, in that moment, you could say, I mean, on a very, very, very low key, but in a sense, what you could say is that I experienced the hate of the world in light of righteousness being displayed. When you take a stand for Jesus in the world, the world is not going to like it because the light of your righteousness Imaging Jesus in this way is going to be a light in the darkness, and when people are in darkness, they don't like their deeds being exposed because they love being in the darkness, John chapter 3. And so what happens is when you righteously exhibit Jesus because Christ is living in you, what it will inevitably do in some way, shape, or form is the light of Christ will be so exposing to the darkness of the world around you, exposing the darkness of their unrighteousness, it is going to stir up hate within them. So John just simply comes to the point where he says this, When this happens, when you practice righteousness as a result of Christ in you, do not be surprised that the world hates you. Now, to avoid the example of Cain and to love fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, it tells us something about ourselves. When when our lives are marked by genuine love for fellow believers, it is evidence that we have been born again and that we have eternal life. We can know that we have passed out of spiritual death into eternal life because our lives are marked by that habitual, continual pattern of love for fellow believers. Now, what John is not saying in verse 14 when he says, we know we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers, what John is not saying is that eternal life is earned by loving others. Like somehow we just do good loving deeds toward others and what that does is it it corners God and then at some point in time God is going to be like, well, they did sort of love well, so I'm obligated now to bestow eternal life upon them. That's not what John is saying. What he is saying, though, is that continually loving others out of gospel gratitude for all that Jesus has done for you is evidence that you have moved from the realm of spiritual death into the realm of spiritual life. It's the one who has no love for fellow believers who abides in death. And John says they not only live in the world of spiritual death, but they are actually seen as murderers in the eyes of God. Eternal life simply is not abiding in them. And so you read these first couple of verses, 11 through 15, and just what's pretty plain to see is this. Cain is a really, really bad example of what love is. Really bad example. But Jesus, on the other hand, is the perfect example of what love is. So if God's children learn to love one another by avoiding the example of Cain, now John wants us to see that God's children learn to serve one another by following the example of Jesus. We learn to serve one another by following the example of Jesus. Serving being, in this sense, in the way John is talking about it, the ultimate example of what love for one another is by looking to the example of Jesus. Verse 16, by this we know love. When you read that kind of language in the Bible, you sort of want to perk up a little bit. So John is saying, do you want to know what biblical love is about? 
We toss around L-O-V-E in our English language all the time. It's so profuse, it nearly means nothing anymore. So when John comes to us and says, biblical love, true love, Christ-like love, we can know what it looks like. We can give a concrete definition to what it is. You want to sort of scoot a little bit up in your chair and you want to pay attention a little bit more. John is saying this in verse 16. We can know love, and it's by this we look to Jesus. By this we know love. Jesus laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but let us love in deed and in truth. In order to get a grip on what love is, we must look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what John is calling us to see. If we want to see true love, we must look at the cross. If we want to know biblical love, we must look at the cross. Biblical love isn't self-centered. It is not self-preserving. It is not self-serving. At its core, true love, biblical love, is defined by self sacrifice. And in this, Jesus is our perfect example, for by this we know that Jesus sacrificed himself for us, laid his life down for us. Cain's hatred issued in murder, but Christ's love issued in self-sacrifice. Cain's hate led to the taking of a life for his gain, but Christ's love led to the sacrifice of his life for our gain. And again, this is how we know love. Look to the cross of Jesus Christ. For at the cross we can sing this hymn, bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood. This is the language of love. This is the language of sacrifice. At night in our house, what we do is we do family worship. And so what we do is we read the Bible, then we sing a song, we pray, and then we're done. And what we'll do is we'll go around the horn with our four little kids and be like, what song would you like to sing tonight? Inevitably, Malachi, four years old, goes, the Jesus loves me song. It's like, all right, man, we can do this. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so, little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. And I follow it up most times with this question. How do you know how much Jesus has loved you? I mean, it's good to tell him Jesus loves you. But what does the Bible specifically have to say about that? And the answer we use is Romans Chapter 5, verse 8. God shows his, here it is, love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, the self-sacrificing example of Christ's love for us isn't rooted and grounded in, I'm going to lay myself down for you just as long as I think you deserve it. The example of Christ is self-sacrificial love, which is unconditional. 
You and I are folded into the family of God because Christ died for us while we were still sinners. And the fact that Christ died for us while we were still sinners shows the extravagant, immeasurable love of the Father for us. That's why we sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I want my little ones to know this. It's not because you're so worthy of the love of God. It's actually because you're rather unlovely. But what makes that love so extravagant is you still find yourself on the, uh, the receiving end of the grace of God through the person of Jesus Christ. Again, this love is beautifully illustrated in another old hymn called When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. One of the verses goes like this. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Do you want to know what true love looks like? Two pieces of wood. The tree. The cross shows us what love is all about. Listen, the fullness of Christ's love is measured in his self-sacrifice at the cross. And what we learn from the example of Jesus is that love is more than mere words. Love is action. And the self-sacrifice of Jesus isn't just something merely to be, to be admired. It is an example to be copied. And with the example of self-sacrificial love found in Jesus, the Apostle John turns and says, Now that you know this, Intimately, in a saving way, follow the example of Jesus. Verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, following in the footsteps of Christ, following the pattern that you know and seen and have received. Out of an overflow of gospel gratitude, in light of the immense love we have received in Jesus, we are to sacrifice our lives for others and sacrifice our goods for others. Since Jesus laid down his life for us, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Following the example of Jesus, there will be times when we are called to lay down our lives for fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Or... If or when we are called upon by God to do such a thing, the Apostle John says this is good and this is right to follow the example of Jesus in this way, to sacrifice ourselves by laying our lives down for the brothers. But true love is not only revealed in the ultimate sacrifice of someone's life. It is also expressed in the sacrifice of worldly goods for a brother who's in need. Listen, it sounds extremely noble to say, man, listen, I would die for you. I would take a bullet for you. I will put myself in your place so you don't have to die, right? It's the whole Hunger Games thing. You know, someone's name gets drawn and they step in. No, I will go and be as tribute. I, I, will, I will step in there, and there's something within us when we watch that it stirs us up because there's something biblical about that. There's something Christ-like about that. Our hearts are stirred, and we go, yes! That's what sacrifice is. That's, the, that's an exhibition of what true love looks like. And it sounds noble to say this, but while we love the idea 
of loving someone to the point of laying down our life, we often miss the more simpler act of love, which is this, seeing a brother in need, sacrificing what you have in order to help that brother meet that need. It is possible to run the risk of so loving everybody in general that we begin to use this as an excuse for loving nobody in particular. For John, this simply should not be, he says. Don't tell me how much love you have for everybody if you're standing there looking at a brother in need, you stifle a yawn, and you walk off knowing you have everything it takes to meet that person's need. To have received the love of Christ while we were in need. We needed to be reconciled to the Father. That's the whole point of the gospel. You have a need that you cannot meet. And if you were to stand before God without having this need met, you will spend eternity apart from the Father. But Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, seeing our need, meeting our need in his work on the cross. That's the good news of the gospel. And so John says, how on earth can you look at how your immense need was met by somebody outside of you, then turn around and look at your brother who is specifically in need, a singular brother, and you in sort of a Christ-like sort of way go, I have everything it takes to meet this person's need, but I refuse to do it. John says, how on earth? earth does the love of God abide in you? Answer, it doesn't. It doesn't. It just simply is not there. In the end, the bottom line just comes down to this. Verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. John wants us to see that love for one another, love for fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, this love in everyday life They're interconnected. They're woven together. To know the love of God in a saving way, it will result in expressing this love for believers in clear-cut, visible action. But the danger you and I face, remember, he's writing to believers, which means he's writing to you and I, for those of us who have been born of God, the danger for you and I is that we slip into the place where we love in word or talk only and neglect how we are to love in deed and in truth. Like, I know me really good, and when I look into the mirror of Scripture here, the reflection that comes back is something I know to be true about myself. I love the idea of loving ideas. And when I find myself loving the idea of loving an idea, I sort of feel good about myself. Like, yeah, this is really good, John. I love what you're writing, and I find myself going, man, this makes sense. And it connects up here, and I find myself going, man, I love the fact that I understand what's going on here. But then what I do is I sell myself short because I tell myself that I've accomplished everything John wants for me. Because I've just simply, I find myself loving and agreeing with the idea that he's putting forward. And John says, no. Don't just merely love in word or talk. Don't just merely be a lover of ideas, but love in deed and in truth. Let love of good and right things lead to the actual action of that right thing. And let that love which leads to that action actually be marked by a heart that's sincere in truth. A heart that genuinely loves what it's doing born out of that idea that you've been talking about. It's a classic example, right? The Boy Scout helping the little old lady across the road. 
if he just stands there and goes, it is good and right for us to help little old ladies across the road. We'd go, I mean, like, that's sort of to be commended. At least he sees that. But it's like we wouldn't really like, applaud him much, if any. It's like, don't, don't just talk to me about how you think it's a good idea. Let what you think is a good idea lead to it. So if he comes up and he says, it is good and right for us to help little old ladies across the road. And then one comes along and he comes and he grabs her hand and he begins to help her across the street. But the whole time in his heart, he's like, man, this stinks and I hate this. I want to be somewhere else. John is saying, you've still missed the point, man. Let us love in word. It's good and right to help little old ladies across the street. Let us love indeed, actually do it, but then let that love be so motivated from a heart rooted and grounded in gospel gratitude that you're actually now doing it in truth with sincerity is what John's point is. Now, there's implications for this just all over the place. And I think one of the questions we can ask ourselves is this. What does it look like for us to not merely love in word or talk only, but in deed and in truth? And I believe the answer boils down to two things. We not only must speak the truth in love, but we also must live the truth in love. Speak truth in love, live truth in love. So you can just think about this in the context of the church. right? So in the context of the church, one of the things we talk about here in Delta is how the gospel completely changes our identity. It completely rearranges who, who we are. And because of the gospel, we are now God's children. We've been adopted into God's family. The gospel makes us family. We are now brothers and sisters in Christ. For those of us who've been born again, we've been enfolded into the family of God. That's why we use this language, children of God. Hey, brother, hey, sister in Christ, that kind of language. It's just biblical. It's good and it's right language. And the gospel is what got us into this place, okay? And because every single one of God's children have been radically changed by the sacrifice of Jesus, this informs how brothers and sisters in Christ relate to one another. And what this means for Delta is that we here in this church were to sacrifice our lives and to sacrifice our goods for our spiritual family. We put a huge emphasis on community and discipleship in this church. We gather on Sunday mornings and we scatter throughout the week in community groups and discipleship groups. We use our words to sharpen and love one another and preach the gospel to each other. We want to speak the truth in love. If Dan sees something in me, I want him to love me enough to, to talk to me about it. I love Dan enough to go, man, I saw something in his life. I'm going to speak the truth, not because I want to try to hurt him or denigrate him or to bring him low or to try to make him to hate me, all these sorts of things. I'm speaking the truth genuinely born out of love for him. Why? Because he's a gospel brother in, in Christ just as much as I am. We make sacrifices not only with our schedules, but sacrifices with our time, sacrifices with our money, sacrifices with our food, sacrifices with our homes. Why? Because we not only want to speak truth and love in word and talk, but we also want to live truth and love in deed and in truth. One of the worst things we could possibly do as a church is to be known as those who merely love in word or talk, where our talk is cheap because our love for one another doesn't actually translate into sincere action. Like, it would become blatantly obvious really quick to anybody here if I stand up and just say, man, the gospel, identity, family, we love each other. Then you just sort of stick around for a couple months and go, like, no one loves you. No, no one does anything around here. 
Like, I hear what he's saying, but the evidence in the culture of the church is we don't lay down our lives for one another with our time, our energy, our money, our schedules, prayer, speaking truth, living truth. No one does that. So I hear what the brother's saying, flat out don't see it. Hypocrisy. John is saying, don't do it. So the question I had for me, and I'm just going to let you guys hear it out loud, is this. When it comes down to these things, of actually letting our lives show love in word, talk, deed, and truth, the question I ask myself is, so how's your love life doing, John? Defined by these verses right here. How's your love life doing? Are you living 16, 17, and 18 rooted and grounded in the reality that Jesus has saved you? Within God's family, do you merely love in word only? You talk a good game. Or John, do you love in deed and truth where your walk backs up your talk? I'll tell you what, when I looked into the mirror of those verses, I didn't quite like, like the reflection that came back. There's, there's, there's this hard, yeah? Hard, but not impossible. Implications for your workplace, sacrificing yourself in the workplace, laying yourself down for the good of others. I think there's implications for these verses for the idea of missions. Some of you, God is planting the missionary call inside your heart. And what it's going to mean is you're going to ultimately lay your life down to go to another nation and possibly die for the spread of the gospel. I think there's implications for that here. There's implications for your marriage. See, a lot of our problems in marriage come from this. I say I love you, but then my actions completely negate everything that I say. I don't sacrifice myself by laying myself down, laying my rights down, and thinking of you more highly than I think of myself. What I do is this. I say, I love you, baby, but then what I mean by love is this. I'm at the center of that. You're not at the center of that. I think there's implications for that here as well. There's even implications here for unbelievers as well. Listen, Jesus laid down his life for you, verse 16. And as a result of Christ's sacrificial work on the cross, you can not only know this love, but experience this love in such a way that you pass out of spiritual death into spiritual life. There's even implications for those of us who go, man, like, I'm not even trying to play the game around here. Like, I just know, like, I'm not in the family of God. Like, what does this have to say to me? And it's this, Jesus laid down his life for you, and you can know in a saving way that love of Christ self-sacrificing love, giving of his own life for your gain so you could be made right with the Father. For some of us, it's just going to be, how do we respond to this? It might just be praying through some of these categories, asking yourself this question. Maybe this just needs to be the prayer in our heart. God, like, what's, what's my, how's my love life doing in regard to these things? Verses 11 to 18. For some of you, if it's implications for how you lay yourself down at work, how you lay yourself down in, and in regard to missions, evangelism, going out of your way to sacrifice so that you can tell other people about Jesus, whether it's implications for marriage, whether it's implications for you as an unbeliever, whether it's just implications for how you do life within our church, God is calling you to respond in a very particular way. And my hope and prayer is that from now until the end, as we go into a time of response to the Lord's Supper and a time of singing, singing, that you will respond accordingly. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way you move. We thank you for...